continue in this series called He Came From Where, where we look at the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, as I mentioned last week, Matthew 25, excuse me, Matthew chapter 1. When we look at Matthew chapter 1, a lot of times it brings up a lot of questions like, how do I pronounce this person's name? Or, or where are they in the whole scheme of who Jesus' lineage is? And so uh, we want to look at that because one of the incredible things about the lineage of Jesus is, yes, it included a lot of high-profile political people, uh, but it also included a woman who we know to be a prostitute. It included some sketchy individuals. And to think that Jesus could come from that line of people and be who he was offers hope to us when we look at our family tree and we see some of the, uh, the nuts that are in our family. And we're in that time of season now where we get to enjoy those people, right? We get to spend Thanksgiving with them and Christmas. And so uh, I want to I look at that. Um, more, more specifically, I want to look at two individuals today, uh, David and Solomon, who are probably the most prominent in the line of Jesus, and look at their lives, and then also look at why people look to the wrong people when Jesus was to come. Let's pray, though. God, thank you for another Sunday that you've blessed us to be together, God, for the amazing worship. We just thank you. Uh, God, this morning, as we know that your spirit is moving about, help us, God, to hear what you would say to us. God, anyone here who's struggling today with the reality of who you are, God, maybe they've looked and said, I don't believe, I'm skeptical. God, today they would find that assurance in their heart. God, today they would see the sacrifice you made was for their very life. Lord, we just love you and thank you for all the amazing things you've done this morning and what you're going to continue to do in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you'll remember at this time last year, our country was kind of in a very unique, divided place. We had just had the election, and if you remember, Donald Trump had got elected, and most people never thought he had a chance, and and so you had half of the people vote for him, and kind of half the people, it was almost a 50-50 split, and so what it left was a country that was divided. If you would fast forward to today, we still remain a country that's divided, and it's amazing to me when I look at politics that how They can divide people so easily. Um, Not only did we have Donald Trump, but you had congressional seats that changed. You had Senate seats that changed. It was just a very uneasy year or a very triumphant year, depending on what side of the line you fell on. And so it was an interesting thing. And I was thinking about it. You know, the consensus that we did have after the election was 100% of of our country thought 50% of our country was absolutely idiots, Right? That's the only consensus we came away with at the end of this. And um, Republicans and Democrats, whether you fall on either side, what I do know is Republicans and Democrats are very, uh, politicians are like divorced parents. Instead of trying to solve problems, they spend their time trying to put the kids against each other. And that's what's happened is we're divided. Everything keeps falling uh, into places where we're like, I don't want to go this far. I want to see unity come back together. We've seen shootings in churches that is worrisome because a lot of it is fueled by some hatred that we don't understand where it's coming from. And so it's a very subtle time of year. It's kind of a sad time of year as we reflect, but also it's a time of the year that I think that we embrace the reality of we are all one people. And the beauty of the lineage of Jesus is that he points us in that, in that direction to let us know that we all come from one. Whether you sit here today and you go, no, my nationality is different. But in the eyes of God, when you become a Christian, you're all one people. And, 
And that's the beauty of what it is. But the reality is that politics is divisive. And a lot of it has to do with this ideal of trying to move forward. John Stewart famously said, if the opposite of con is pro, or excuse me, the opposite of pro is con, then the, the opposite of Congress is progress. And we live in a world that wants to move forward and we're angry when it doesn't move forward. Now, I'm not going to spend my whole time talking about politics, but we are going to talk about two political people today. Um, I read this. I don't know. You, you may be able to uh, understand this pretty well. I read this thing that said, Politicians and diapers have one thing in common. They should both be changed regularly and for the same reason. I don't know. Don't, don't understand what that means, but... Uh, no, moving forward is what we all have to do. And, and you may have spent Thanksgiving Day sitting around your Thanksgiving table talking politics. Let's be honest, every family has that one person that that's all they want to talk about, right? They wear the Make America Great hat to the dinner table and they're like, let's just talk about all the great things. Or, or they're wearing a shirt that says uh, about change and, and they want to talk about those things. Everybody has that family member. And, and I recall my first time going to uh, be at a, at a family gathering for Amber's family. And uh, her great-grandfather uh, is a very vocal man. And I remember we were sitting down eating. This was Thanksgiving breakfast because they did a breakfast. And, and he pulled me to the side and he said, uh, he starts talking to me about politics. Uh, and he had met both Bushes, father and junior. And so he was talking to me about that. And he always wanted to pitch some kind of business idea. Now, he was, he was a wealthy man. And he was like, uh, let me talk to you about solar energy. And I said, okay. He's like, if I was your age... I would leave everything behind. I would go to California. I would learn about solar energy. I would bring that knowledge back, and I would be wealthy. And I was like, I have a wife and kids. It sounds simple enough, but everybody has that family member who that loves to enjoy or enjoys talking about those things. The problem with politics is that we focus too much on the individual being the Savior. What divides us is that I think that the political person that I put my trust in is the one that's going to save everything that I see is wrong in the world. And when we realize that they're not our savior, we become frustrated. Or when we realize that they're actually against me, we become frustrated. Now this ideal has been going on since the beginning of time. If you were to read Genesis chapter 3 verse 16, Jesus, excuse me, God tells Eve that one day... Someone is going to come from her line, and that person is going to crush the head of the serpent. So the very thing that caused us to no longer be in communication with God and have fellowship with Him, one day someone was going to come and they were going to crush that, and we could enter back into fellowship with God. And as you can imagine, from that prophecy on, every single person was looked at and says, Is this my Savior? And it led to a lot of conflicts and wars, and it led to a lot of division, because everyone believed that this next king is going to be the Messiah that we looked for. And he got into office, and he would have failures, and he would stumble, and they would go, all right, this next person, and they put their hope in the wrong person. And it causes division. So that's the problem with politics. But when we look at the lineage of Jesus, we find that there's two individuals that stand out for their political accomplishments, and and also for their failures. 
David and Solomon. Now, we did a series on David at the beginning of the year, but I want to kind of refresh you on who he is. Uh, David was the runt of his family. His father's name was Jesse. And one day, a man named Samuel came to anoint the next king. And Jesse literally offered up every son but David. And, and Samuel knew that this wasn't who God wanted. And finally, he says, I got one son left. I'll, I'll let you see him. But he was kind of the runt of the family, right? He was out watching the sheep. He was not the person you think would fit the role of what a king would be. So this 14-year-old boy comes strolling in, and all of a sudden he is the one, he is the one that God has picked to be the second ever king of Israel. What an amazing thing. But he's 14 years old. But something happens, right? A man named Saul was actually the king at the time. And when God, when, when David was anointed, the Bible says that the Spirit of God came on David and evil spirits began to conflict with Saul. Now what this did is usher David in to the king's house because the king was so troubled by evil spirits that there was nothing that could soothe it other than David playing the harp. And this offered him admission into the king's home. One day David, famously, we know this story, David goes to deliver food to his brothers. He's already formed a relationship with the king in some manner. And he shows up to the battleground and there stands this nine foot tall man who is not only making fun of Saul, his king, but also mocking God. And David is fed up. He doesn't like first that they're not reacting to it, but he definitely hates the fact that God is being mocked. And so David does this battle that we're uh, famous that, that we famously know is where David goes to the battlefield. He confronts him with just a sling. He throws one stone and he takes out Goliath. David, in that moment, became the hero of Israel. And if you could imagine being in the shoes of Saul, it was a very difficult place to be. People sang the praises of David, and they really kind of looked at Saul as a little bit of a coward. And so David, who is now one of the leaders for Saul's army, is also someone he is unquenchably jealous of. And so David has to enter into this new thing where he has to go on the run and for fear of his life. And so David, because of the jealousy of Saul, begins to go on the run because Saul was trying to kill him. And many times Saul tried to kill him and God always spared David. Eventually, Saul would meet his own death on the battlefield. And David would be anointed king first of Judah because Saul's family didn't want to relinquish the lineage. And so David became the king of Judah. And one of the most amazing things that I find that I read about David is that though Saul constantly tried to kill him, he never once raised his hand towards Saul because he believed that you should never touch an anointed man of God. And so David lived by that. He also lived by the fact that whoever had killed the anointed man of God deserved to pay the price for it. And though Saul tried to kill him many times, when David became the king of Judah, he summoned the person who arrogantly said, I killed Saul, and he had him put to death. And then David entered into this kind of a civil war with Saul's family, and eventually he became the king over all of Israel at, at the age of 30 years old. It's an amazing amount of accomplishments for such a young man. 
That's why we look at David and go, what an incredible man. And all along the way, we see a man who's patient, who's forgiving, who's loving, who is a caring, devoted follower of God. And it's the reason that God would look at him and call him the apple of his eye. It's the reason that he became this figure in history that the Jews constantly reflect back to because of what he had accomplished. But David became so enthralled after he became after he came into ruler to rule over Israel, he became so enthralled with this with this new position. One of the things he wanted to do was to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to the people, and so David set out on this mission to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. That he got so caught up in it that he actually omitted some of God's instructions on how to transport the Ark and how to carry it. If you recall, there. There was no one allowed to touch the Ark of the Covenant because instantly God would strike them dead. Well, this resulted in a man named Uzziah who, as the Ark started to fall, just instinctively went to catch it and God struck him dead on the spot. And so amid all the celebrations, when he reached out to steady it, he was instantly killed. In fear of the Lord, David actually abandoned moving the Ark for three months and let it rest in the house of Obed. He decided, I don't want to risk this anymore. He was a popular king. People loved him. Somebody just died because of something that he had failed to follow fully. And so he decided, we're going to put it on hold for three months. Eventually, the ark makes its way back to Jerusalem. And David has designed this elaborate plans to build a temple around it. It's a cool thing, right? David wants to honor God through this. But something happens in the planning and prior to the building where David falls in love with a woman named Bathsheba. He sees her one day as she's tanning on top of her building and he falls in love with her and he decides, man, she's got to be mine because he was a king. He could make demands like that. Well, he and Bathsheba entered into a relationship and she became pregnant. The problem with all of this is Bathsheba's a a married woman and her husband is out fighting the battles for David. And And as you know, the story goes on. David actually has her husband murdered so that he could cover up all of this. And God punishes David by telling him that he will not be able to build the temple around the Ark of the Covenant. I want to I read it to you. Though God did this, God assured him he would continue to make his name the greatest on the earth and forever establish the throne of David through David's son, Solomon. Well, instead of being angry with God and having kind of this pity party, David sat before the Lord praising him and thanking him for the many blessings he has received in his life. What an incredible man, right? I would be so angry in that moment, like, I just made one mistake, God. How are you going to do this? And David looks at it and says, all right, God, I, I'm not going to be mad about it. I'm not going to throw a party about a pity party about it. I'm, you said it. I'm, I'm going to live by this. You're, you're, the, you're the one who's made this decision. Throughout David's life, His sons had kind of connived and conspired to take control of his kingdom. And they tried multiple times to attempt him. Famously, we know that one of his sons named Absalom was actually killed. And David, instead of celebrating the death of his son who was trying to kill him, again, mourned the death of his son. He was a compassionate and loving man. And as the death of, excuse me, and as David is remembered for being Israel's greatest king, Um, his leadership didn't go without failure. Many thought that he was going to be the Messiah. Many thought, this is what we've waited for, for someone to come and redeem us. 
David conquered so many countries. David was a leader who had compassion, who loved his people. They go, they go this is the Messiah, but unfortunately sprinkled in this great leadership is failure. And I'll get to it in just a minute, but the rule of prophecy is if you can't fulfill all the prophecy, then you essentially fulfill none of the prophecy. There's 61 prophecies about the Messiah, and David couldn't fulfill them all. And so because he couldn't fulfill them all, he fulfilled none. And so you've got to think, as God lays out this, this covenant with David, that one day from him, the son of David would come, or one day from him, the Messiah would come. And so David has to be excited about this, but also the people have to be excited. And they're probably thinking, all right, cool, one of David's sons is going to be the Messiah. This is who we've waited for. On his deathbed, David uh, um, tells them to go out and anoint Solomon as his replacement. And Solomon was his son through Bathsheba. So he and Bathsheba's son, Solomon, is going to be the next king over all of Israel. Well, Solomon is unique because his whole journey to the throne involved him pursuing God. And even when he becomes in his role that he has been waiting and anxiously getting uh, prepared for, he is still pursuing God. And when he gets in this role, God says, you can ask me for anything you want. And we know that Solomon doesn't ask for wealth. He doesn't ask for anything other than he says, I want wisdom to make the decisions that I need to make to be the proper leader that you've called me to be. And God, because of his humility, not only gave him the wisdom he requested, but gave him the wealth that he didn't even request. It's an amazing thing. They say that his riches and wisdom surpassed all the kings of the earth combined. I mean, God had blessed him to that magnitude. God also gave him peace on all sides during most of his reign. And so his father, David, led in a war-riddled country who was constantly fighting battle after battle, who the Philistines seemed to be the thorn that always popped up. And then when Solomon takes over, they experience peace for the majority of his leadership. I mean, come on, this would be who you think the Messiah would be, right? He's come and he's brought peace. He's the smartest man. He has more wealth than all the other kings that are walking the earth at this time. I mean, he is the one that they've been waiting for. My favorite illustration of his wisdom it's when he's judging a dispute over the identity of the true mother of an infant child. And, and if you remember this story, they're, they're disputing over which of the alive two children, were, one was killed and one was still alive. And, and the mother who actually killed the child who rolled over on top of him is they're going before Solomon. And Solomon says, uh, he, he makes this decision that you would never think. He's like, all right, we'll just cut the baby in half and you can each have one side. And, and the, the mother who is actually the mother says, no, no, I'd rather have the baby. And Solomon knows in that moment who the actual mother of the baby is. It's one of the neatest things and, and it's a wisdom thing that you wouldn't think of in the moment, but it defines who he really is. And Solomon was not only wise in this rule, but he had just this great general wisdom overall. His wisdom was so renowned that the queen of Sheba traveled 1,200 miles to verify the rumors of his wisdom and the grandeur of his kingdom. Solomon wrote over a thousand proverbs, not counting letters and stuff that he wrote. I mean, he was a well-authored person. Uh, Solomon also built a fleet of ships and he acquired tons of gold. Solomon also had 700 wives and 300 concubines. 
many of them foreigners who led him into public idolatry in his old age, and, and, and it greatly angered God. Solomon would be the last ruler of the United Kingdom of Israel. And today, the remnants of some of his decisions still affect the Middle East. It's an amazing thing, right? If I was to give you, um, if I was to stand at his funeral and give you the eulogy, I would talk about all the stuff that I just talked about, how wise he was, some of the decisions he made, how much he loved his people. He, built a, he, he finished a temple that David never got to build. Solomon's temple was an amazing sight to see him. What an incredible man. And then we find as he got older, his wisdom became arrogance. And instead of trusting God to win his battles, he chose foreign relationships and the marrying of other people who would then forge an alliance between their armies. We also find that instead of worshiping God anymore, he's decided now that he's going to also worship some of these foreign gods of the people that he's married to. What an incredible life until the end of his life. And we find that 80 years old, he dies of natural causes. And his son named Rehoboam, who we talked about last week, takes over. And instantly when Rehoboam takes over, the, t- the northern ten kingdoms say, we're not a part of this. And what used to be the united uh, Israel is now a divided nation. And Rehoboam takes over as the leader of Judah, and that's it. I mean, it's an incredible thing when you look at Jesus and the people that are in his line. You look at David and all the great attributes of David we see in Jesus. He's a loving, compassionate, trusting man. All the great things we see in Solomon of his wisdom and his decision making. That's who Jesus was. And everybody looked at them to be the Messiah. They said, this is the one that's going to change everything. And countless times they were led, let down. I imagine every time people sat at dinner tables, they would go, the next king has got to be the one. And they would sit down when David was a leader and go, don't you believe that David is the next one? And, and something would happen. They would go, well, no, obviously it's not him. Maybe it's Solomon. Solomon's got to be the one that God promised in the garden. And once again, they were let down. And there was ruler after ruler after ruler in the lineage of Jesus. And every one of them had failures and let their people down. And so this prophecy, though, would be fulfilled 1,000 years later after David's time. Regarding the birth of Jesus, Isaiah said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And so we're getting into some of the things that had to, or excuse me, the things that had to be fulfilled for it to be the Messiah. And these are the things that Jesus fulfilled for To us, a child is born, as Isaiah 9, 6 says. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Micah 5, 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, you out of you will come for me, who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Concerning the ministry of Jesus, Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Psalms 22.16-18, Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have, has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. 
I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And then likely the clearest prophecy of Jesus was the whole entire chapter of of Isaiah 53, but I want to read a portion. Um, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to slaughter, and a sheep before his shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. What an incredible, incredible thing that we read these prophecies of Jesus. And this is what people were looking for. Every time they would go, does this person meet this criteria? Does this person, is this person willing to go through what we're reading that the Savior must go through? And they were let down countless times. And then Jesus came and nobody even knew he was there. Most people didn't know he was what they'd been looking for their whole life. He was the answer to every question that they had. He was the one who was going to offer hope in a very hopeless situation. As a matter of fact, 61 detailed prophecies. Oh, excuse me. I wanted to read this. According to Hebrew requirement that a prophecy must have 100% of rate of accuracy, the true Messiah of Israel must fulfill them all, or else he is not Messiah. In the case of the 61 detailed prophecies being fulfilled by one person, we are talking about virtually impossible odds. When forensic scientists discovered a DNA profile match, the odds of having the wrong person is frequently less than one in several billion. It would seem we are in the same neighborhood of odds and in numbers of zeros in considering a single individual fulfilling these prophecies. And so, I hope you understand that. In the same way that we trust DNA, and if somebody stood before me and says the DNA matches the crime scene, then for me, it's, it's enough. I go, well, that, we can't prove that. The likelihood of getting that wrong is, is so slim. And when they compare these numbers, they go, the likelihood is even, is even uh, higher than it is with uh, the DNA stuff. Um, Professor of Mathematics Peter Stoner, what a great last name, gave 600 students a math probability problem that would determine the odds of one person fulfilling eight specific prophecies. The first students calculated the odds of one person fulfilling all the conditions of one specific prophecy, such as being betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, then the students did their best to estimate the odds for all eight of the prophecies. The students calculated that the odds against one person fulfilling all eight prophecies are astronomically 1 in 10 to the 21st power. It's a lot of zeros. To illustrate that number, Stoner gave the following example. First, blanket the entire earth landmass with silver dollars 120 feet high. Second, marks, marks specially... Uh, one of those dollars, and randomly bury it. Third, ask a person to travel to earth and select the marked dollar while blindfolded from the trillions of other dollars. 
That's the likelihood of eight of the 61 prophecies being fulfilled. I want to read some of them to you. The prophecy, the Messiah would be from the lineage of King, uh, King David. We read that uh, in Jeremiah, and we find that fulfilled not only in Matthew 1, but also in Luke chapter 3. The prophecy that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. We read that in Zechariah, and we find that fulfilled in Matthew 26. The prophecy that the Messiah would have his hands and feet pierced, and the fulfillment of that came to place uh, on Golgotha, or the, the place of the skull. All three were crucified there. Jesus on the center cross and the two criminals on either side. The prophecy people would cast lots for the Messiah's clothing. The the fulfillment of that, the soldiers took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top. So they said, let's not tear it, but throw dice to see who gets it. That was fulfilled in John 19. The prophecy that the Messiah would appear riding on a donkey, that fulfillment was was when they brought the animals to him and they threw his garments over the colt and he sat on it in Matthew 21, right before his death. And then the eighth one that they looked at, the likelihood of being fulfilled, a messenger would be sent to the herald, uh, to herald the Messiah. John told them, I baptize with water, but right here in the crowd is someone you do not know. John 1.26. And so there's the eight prophecies that they reviewed about the Messiah and what's interesting is about, is about those different prophecies is they were written by men from different times and different places and they ranged from 500 to 1,000 years apart in their, in their composure. Thus there was no opportunity for collusion among them and you have to notice how specific each one of them are. It's an incredible thing. The Bible scholars tell us that nearly 300 references to 61 specific prophecies of the Messiah were fulfilled by Jesus. The odds against one person fulfilling that many prophecies would be beyond all mathematical possibilities. It could never happen, no matter how much time was allotted. One mathematician's estimate of those impossible odds is one chance in a trillion, 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 trillion. It goes on ten times. That's what he says, the likelihood of all those being fulfilled. There have been good politicians, but there's never been a great leader. We all can talk about, I remember when this person was over or this, and man, they were such a great politician. They were such a good leader. But we've never experienced what great leadership is. Jesus came and he fulfilled what David and Solomon could never do. David and Solomon could never bring hope past this life. And Jesus came and he bought us back and said, I can offer you hope and hope beyond this life. As a matter of fact, he did the opposite of what people expected. People thought, hope is whenever I can go home and feel comfortable with my life. And Jesus said, actually, if you follow me, you're going to live a very uncomfortable life. But hope is that when I leave this earth, I'm united with the creator who put me on this earth. And so Jesus changed the perspective of what people thought hope looked like. He changed the perspective of what peace looked like. That peace wasn't countries not fighting. Peace was something on the inside that I can't even explain to you why it exists. That's what peace is. We'll never have peace amongst people because we'll always have sin as the influencer of people's lives. But what we can have is in the midst of the most troubling storm is to know that I'm anchored to the very thing that won't move in the midst of it. And that brings me peace. And Jesus changed everything and he defined to them what love is. And he offered mercy, which never came from the throne. 
All that ever came from a throne was judgment. And Jesus said, that's not how I'm going to lead. I will look at a broken person, someone who struggles with their infirmities, and I will say to them, you have been pardoned from the mistakes you made. He changed the perspective of what leadership is. And today, we look in our country and go, Ben, I'm ready for somebody to fix our economy. I want to make more money. I don't want student loan debt. I don't want to have to deal with the struggles of this. And I don't want to have to face this. And we look to this politician and that politician, and we're no different than the Jews are. We're just waiting. All right, send us the Savior. But the reality is our Savior has come. And Christmas is the celebration of his entering into our world. The problem that we have in looking at it is realizing that he didn't come the way that we expected him to. He's not going to take away your student loan debt. I wish he would. I would gladly give it up. He's not going to make you not face problems. There is going to be people that don't like you. There's going to be people that treat you the wrong way. He's not the person who comes in and cleans that up because that's insignificant in the greater scheme of things. What he has done is he's taken a life that has fallen all to pieces and said, I want to put you back together and I want to bring you into a relationship with someone who can absolutely change the inside of you, who understands now what love is. Love isn't some physical thing. Love is an emotional thing that goes beyond our comprehension that we don't understand why he loves us, but he does, and therefore we love other people. He's changed everything that we understand. And today only peace, hope, love, and mercy can be found in the arms of our Savior. This morning, this whole message has been to bring us to this. That if you've come here and you've been looking on every lineage of thing, going, I want to see if this doctor can help me, and I want to see if, if this counselor can help me, and I want to see if my boss can help me, and I want to see if my mom and dad can give me some advice. And You've looked everywhere, and you sit here hopeless this morning. Then I want to point you to where you need to look. It's the cross. It's because of Christmas that we get Easter. And it's because of Easter that we get eternal life. And it's such a beautiful circle of life. And this morning, no matter where you've looked, you've come to the right place. Because if you look at Jesus, He can change everything that's wrong in your life. He can make your addictions go away. He can make your struggles dissipate. And He can make your life feel afresh. The lineage of Jesus is filled with failed leaders, but his life has consumed us with hope of a perfect Savior. Let's pray. God, thank you this morning for your love, your grace, your mercy. God, that you offer hope in this hopeless situation, that you offer grace to an individual that doesn't deserve it. This morning, God, as we 